Good news and bad. Actually, there's no bad news. Just challenges or maybe new opportunities. Hello, I'm Anthony Day with your Sustainable Futures Report for Friday the 19th of March. I've had a number of interviews over the last few episodes, which means that a lot of stories have been backing up. Some, I'm afraid, will just slip away as I try and remain topical. But here's my latest selection. First, the bad news. The latest sea level rise forecasts are alarming some scientists, while others warn that the Atlantic circulation is at its weakest in a thousand years. The British government has announced a billion pounds to spend on reducing the carbon footprint of industry, but the Labour opposition claims that the government approach is stuck in the past. The budget statement by the Chancellor earlier this month disappointed many, and other governments, notably India and Brazil, are attracting criticism. The General Secretary of the United Nations has a harsh warning for all countries. The OECD has a new climate sceptic head. The tropics are becoming uninhabitable for humans, if we're not careful. And globally, we waste nearly a billion tonnes of food each year. On the other hand, food waste could perhaps be turned into aviation fuel. AI, artificial intelligence, could come to the rescue of the planet. Drax Power Station has scrapped plans for the largest gas-powered plant in Europe. There's growing pressure against the expansion of the Leeds-Bradford Airport and against the UK's new coal mine planned for West Cumbria. And finally, there's a very rich man with a surprisingly altruistic outlook. Last week, I spoke with Kim McCoy about waves and beaches, and he explained how the total melt of all Greenland ice would lead to a seven-metre rise in sea levels, and he pointed out that where I live, York in the UK, is just about seven metres above the current sea level, and so would be underwater. I took comfort from the fact that he didn't think that would happen in my lifetime. In fact, the assessment by the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, indicates that a rise of 1.1 metres can be expected by 2100. However, a recent article in Ocean Science from the European Geosciences Union says some studies conclude that considerably greater sea level rise could be realised and a number of experts assign a substantially higher likelihood of such a future. Even a rise of one metre will increase the volume and power of storm surges and the distance inland that they reach. Commentators point out that many nuclear power stations are on coasts and new stations are planned for coastal sites in the UK and probably elsewhere as well. The plant at Fukushima is on the coast of Japan and was overwhelmed by a tsunami. A storm surge could have much the same effect. While storm surges can cause devastation, the Gulf Stream keeps us warm. Therefore, it's a bit worrying to read an article in Nature Geoscience from the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, which says... Never before, in over a thousand years, the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, the AMOC, also known as Gulf Stream System, has been as weak as in the last decades. This is the result of a new study by scientists from Ireland, Britain and Germany. Researchers found consistent evidence that its slowdown in the 20th century is unprecedented in the past millennium. It is likely linked to human-caused climate change. 
The giant ocean circulation is relevant for weather patterns in Europe and regional sea levels in the US. Its slowdown is also associated with an observed cold blob in the North Atlantic. The authors warn that as the current slows down, more water can pile up on the US east coast, leading to an enhanced sea level rise. In Europe, a further slowdown of the Gulf Stream could imply more extreme weather events like a change of the winter storm track coming off the Atlantic, possibly intensifying them. Other studies found possible consequences being extreme heat waves or a decrease in summer rainfall. Exactly what the further consequences are is the subject of current research. Another article in Nature Geoscience suggests that holding global warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade will prevent most of the tropics from reaching a wet bulb temperature, a TW, of 35 degrees centigrade, the limit of human adaptation. Wet bulb temperature is a metric which combines temperature and humidity. The British government this week announced a major blueprint to create green jobs and slash emissions from industry, schools and hospitals. I'll examine that later in the good news section. Meanwhile, other governments come in for criticism. Naomi Klein writes in The Intercept how India targets climate activists with the help of big tech. She recounts the case of Disha Ravi, a nature-loving 22-year-old vegan climate activist. She's one of the founders of the Indian chapter of Fridays for Future, the youth climate group started by Greta Thunberg, and she co-edited a protest toolkit. For this, she was arrested for sedition, incitement and involvement in an international conspiracy whose elements include Indian farmers in revolt. And she was denied bail. After nine days, the judge ruled that there was no reason for bail to be denied and issued an 18-page ruling. The police's evidence against the young climate activist is, he wrote, scanty and sketchy and there is not even an iota of proof to support the claims of sedition, incitement or conspiracy that have been levelled against her and at least two other young activists. Klein quotes the case as an example of collusion between big tech and the Indian government. For example, after some early resistance from the company, Twitter accounts critical of the Modi government have disappeared in the hundreds without explanation. Government officials engaging in bold incitement and overt hate speech on Twitter and Facebook have been permitted to continue in clear violation of the company's policies. And Delhi police boast that they are getting plenty of helpful cooperation from Google as they dig through the private communications of peaceful climate activists like Ravi. Complicity in human rights abuses, it seems, is the price paid by Facebook, Google and Twitter of retaining access to the largest market of digital media users outside China, says Klein. The judge who ruled on Ravi's bail wrote, Citizens are the conscience keepers of government in any democratic nation. They cannot be put behind bars simply because they choose to disagree with the state policies. I hope British parliamentarians are listening. The Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill is currently going through Parliament containing wide powers for the police and the Home Secretary to define and outlaw protest. As somebody says, it's probably all right if your protest doesn't annoy or inconvenience anyone, but an unnoticed protest achieves nothing 
an article in politics.co.uk complaining that two stages have already been voted through is headlined anti-protest bill, freedom dies in silence. Still time for the bill to be amended. I hope it will be. Another country up for criticism this week, indirectly at least, is Brazil, which is rapidly becoming a failed state with political turmoil and a Covid fatality rate nearly as bad as the UK. On eBay, people have been selling land in the rainforests and in so-called protected tribal areas for clearance and agriculture. They do this without title to the land and without fear of inspection or sanction by government. Fabricio Guimarães, who was filmed by a hidden camera, said, there's no risk of an inspection by state agents here. He told an undercover BBC reporter that he had a job in the city and simply saw the rainforest as an investment opportunity. The Guardian reports that the UK has systematically and persistently broken legal limits on toxic air pollution for a decade. The Court of Justice of the EU has ruled. Levels of nitrogen dioxide, mostly from diesel vehicles, remain illegally high in 75% of urban areas and the court said the UK had failed to tackle the problem in the shortest possible time as required by law. The case began before the UK left the EU and the legal limits remain in UK law. The UK could face financial penalties if it still fails to take action to comply. The court also ordered the UK to pay the legal costs incurred by the European Commission. UK ministers had already been defeated three times in British courts by environmental lawyers Client Earth. The worrying thing is that despite these legal defeats, the government appears to believe that it is above the law, and so does nothing. The UN Environment Programme, UNEP, its food waste index reveals that 17% of the food available to consumers in shops, households and restaurants goes directly into the bin. Almost a billion tonnes each year. And 60% of that amount is wasted in the home. But the good news is that since lockdown the total has been declining. Nevertheless, the global pro problem is much bigger than had been previously estimated. Ahead of major global climate and biodiversity summits later this year, UNEP Executive Director Inga Andersen is pushing for countries to commit to combating waste, halving it by 2030. If we want to get serious about tackling climate change, nature and biodiversity loss and pollution and waste, businesses, governments and citizens around the world have to do their part to reduce food waste, she said. Richard Swannell from rap.org.uk, that's the Waste and Resources Action Programme, told the BBC, wasted food is responsible for 8 to 10% of greenhouse gas emissions. So if food waste was a country, it would be the third biggest emitter of greenhouse gases on the planet. The OECD, Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, has a new leader, Secretary-General-designate Matthias Cormann. While many countries congratulated Cormann on his appointment, some reports were less complimentary. A climate of change vandal goes to Paris, said the International Policy Digest. Cormann was Australia's longest-serving finance minister and notorious for his climate scepticism. 
In the Australian Parliament, he'd voted to repeal Australia's successful carbon price in 2014. He had attempted to abolish the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and the Australian Renewal Energy Agency. As Finance Minister, he tried to abolish the very same green finance bodies he will no doubt be promoting as evidence of his green credentials for the job, says Australian Greens leader Adam Bant. The OECD itself has reproached Australia's climate change policies. In a 2019 report, the organisation noted Australia's progress in decoupling the main environmental pressures from economic growth, but that it remains one of the most resource and carbon intensive OECD economies. Before I move on to the good news, and yes, there is some, the most worrying story to cross my desk recently comes from the UN. In the year of COP26 and the five-year review of progress against the Paris Agreement, the United Nations has warned that the commitments of countries across the globe to tackle global warming are nowhere close to targets. Secretary-General Antonio Guterres said 2021 was a make-or-break year to confront the global climate emergency. The science is clear. To limit global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius, we must cut global emissions by 45% by 2030 from 2010 levels, he stressed. He called on major emitters to step up with much more ambitious emissions reductions. Targets for 2030 in their NDCs highlighting that COVID-19 recovery plans offer the opportunity to build back greener and cleaner. Decision makers must walk the talk. Long-term commitments must be matched by immediate actions to launch the decade of transformation that people and planet so desperately need, Mr Guterres urged. Now, let me play you a clip from my very first podcast back in 2007. The time for doubt has passed. That's what UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon said at this week's Climate Change Summit. The chief UN climate scientist, Rajendra Pachari, said the time is up for inaction. Billed as the largest ever high-level meeting on climate change, the event re-emphasised the commitment of global governments to action. It seems they're still talking, still saying the same things, 14 years on. And now for some good news. The launch of the Yorkshire and Humber Climate Commission took place this week with speakers including the Mayor of Sheffield, the Chief Executive of Yorkshire Water, representatives of the TUC and the CBI, and Lord Devon, Chair of the Committee on Climate Change. It's one of many similar bodies across the country and indeed across the world. It's an advisory body with no powers or sanctions, but it can inform encourage and share best practice. The most encouraging thing for me was that 400 people joined the online launch event last Wednesday evening. It shows that the climate crisis is finally being recognised by more and more people and organisations. As I said earlier, the British government this week announced a major blueprint to create green jobs and slash emissions from industry, schools and hospitals. They described it as an ambitious blueprint to deliver the world's first low-carbon industrial sector and over a billion pounds to cut emissions. I've put it down as good news, but we need to see some action to confirm that. A billion pounds is 
not very much in comparison with the £2 billion budgeted, although now withdrawn, for the Green Homes Grant Scheme. It's not a great deal in comparison with the £37 billion set aside for the test and trace system, although arguably just as important. The Labour opposition lost no time in criticising the government for not going far enough and claimed they were living in the past. There was criticism too of the Chancellor's budget earlier this month. Once again he decided not to raise fuel duty for the tenth year in succession. Cars are becoming larger and less efficient, using more fuel and producing more CO2 per mile. By not index linking the duty, fuel is becoming cheaper, so people more readily waste it with no thought for the consequences for our survival. I reported the bad news above that we are wasting significant amounts of food. An article in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the US reveals the good news that food waste can be turned into a type of paraffin for use as aviation fuel. The authors of the new study say the fuel cuts greenhouse gas emissions by 165% compared to fossil energy. Let's hope that they can turn that claim into reality. According to Raconteur, there are at least six ways in which artificial intelligence, AI, can save the planet. These include preserving species, improving recycling, protecting forests, cutting air pollution, minimising food waste and reducing sewage pollution. There's a link to the article on the website at the end of this episode. And the website, as you'll remember, is www sustainablefutures.report. The Guardian reports that Drax, operator of the UK's largest power station, has scrapped plans to build Europe's largest gas-powered station. This echoes remarks in Bill Gates' book that I spoke about recently. He says that while replacing coal with gas will give an immediate greenhouse gas reduction, the problem is with the life of the new plant. Such a plant would have an expected life of up to 50 years and would not be economic if it operated for a shorter time. That means it would still be producing CO2 in 2050, by when our emissions should be zero. A report from UNESCO reveals that three of Australia's World Heritage listed marine sites have more than 2 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide locked away in their vast seagrass meadows, coastal mangroves and tidal marshes. The good news, reported in the conversation, is that as the world warms, mangroves are increasing globally and mangroves can trap and store as much CO2 as rainforests. There's continuing opposition to the expansion of Leeds Bradford Airport. Almost 250 professors, academics and researchers from Leeds University including two of the lead authors of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Reports, have written to Robert Jenrick, the Minister for Housing, Communities and Local Government, predicting dire consequences for the climate crisis if the plans go ahead. They argue that the proposals would breach guidelines set out by the Climate Change Committee in its sixth carbon budget published in December and make it much more difficult and costly for the UK to achieve its net-zero climate targets. Professor Julia Steinberger, a lead author with the IPCC, said the Leeds-Bradford airport expansion represents a firm commitment to worsening climate breakdown now and in the future. 
If we want to avoid the worsening of the greatest threat humanity has ever faced, we must ramp down fossil fueled sectors. Indeed, if we are serious about zero carbon 2050, we cannot afford investment in facilities which will support the increased use of fossil fuel. It may be possible to run aircraft on paraffin from waste food, but we are by no means there yet. By the way, Professor Julius Steinberger appeared, of course, on the Sustainable Futures report last year. More good news, in my view at least, is that more international voices, including climate envoy John Kerry, are urging the UK government not to allow the development of the proposed new deep coal mine in Cumbria, northwest England. In a BBC Newsnight interview, he said that coal was not the future. No investment firm is going to invest in a new coal plant, he said. This follows the letter from leading climate scientist James Hansen to Prime Minister Johnson. In it, he said, in leading the UK as host to the COP, that's COP26, which will be in Glasgow in November, you have a chance to change the course of our climate trajectory, earning the UK and yourself historic accolades. Or you can stick with business as you, almost as usual and be vilified in the streets of Glasgow, London and around the world. It would be easy to achieve this latter ignominy and humiliation. Just continue with the plan to open a new coal mine in Cumbria and continue to invest funds of the British public in fossil fuel projects overseas in contemptuous disregard of the future of young people and nature. I quoted that in an episode last month, as you may remember. On the other hand, the local mayor, no doubt thinking of jobs, said he felt a lot of the criticism levelled at the mine in terms of its impact on climate change lay in misunderstood conclusions. His concern is that people do not realise that the coal would not be burnt in power stations, but would be used for steel production, for which he says there are no alternatives. That's not necessarily true, although alternatives like hydrogen are very expensive and will need investment in new facilities. But if cheaper coal continues to be produced, the incentive for investment in these new facilities will be less attractive. The government said initially that the decision on the mine was a local issue, but it has now agreed to an inquiry. The very thought that anybody could be paid a million pounds a day, or that anybody could be worth that, is difficult to comprehend. Nevertheless, the story of Sir Chris Hone is quite unique. There's no rich ancestor or inherited wealth. He built his fortune from zero. What is interesting about it is that he has pumped £4 billion into a children's charity which he set up, and he's promising to use his fund's $30 billion of investments to force change on companies who refuse to take their environmental emissions seriously. He is also the largest donor to Extinction Rebellion. I don't really approve of very large amounts of money being in the hands of a very small number of people, but I am grateful to those who use it to benefit the rest of us. And that's it for this week. Many thanks to Ian Cray, Ian Jarvis, Carol Dance, Andy Walker and Alice Covoisier for feedback and ideas. I'm working through them and I hope to include them in future episodes. Do you remember Solar Impulse and the solar-powered aircraft which flew around the world? I'll be interviewing the pilot next month. 
Before I go, let me thank all the patrons who support the Sustainable Futures Report and tell you how you can also become a patron. For a small monthly contribution, you can help me cover the costs of the Sustainable Futures Report. It's the only source of income as there's no advertising, sponsorship or subsidies. As a patron, you'll have exclusive access to the A to Z of Sustainability, which I'm launching this month. I really am going to write it this month, or the beginning of it anyway. A is for action, as I told you recently, and for a lot more besides. I'm always grateful to patrons for information and ideas, and to all my listeners as well. If you want to sign up, as I said, you'll find the details at patreon.com/sfr. Thank you, thank you all for listening. That was the Sustainable Futures Report. I'm Anthony Day. Until next time.